Well, I gave you kind of like a, a warning last week as we were coming through the end of the history of the kings of Israel and Judah. I had to give you a little bit of a, a history lesson. And today it's even going to be worse. I've got dates. I hate dates. I remember I had one history class where the professor said, in this class you will memorize two dates. You will know these two dates. I don't care about any other dates, but you'll know these two dates. The destruction of the northern kingdom and the destruction of the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom, 721 B.C., southern kingdom, 586 B.C., haven't forgotten them since. I guarantee you, if I had to memorize dates for everything else in that class, I would have learned none of them. So I've got dates. If you're like me, just let them go in one ear, out the other. But my goal is just to give you a chronological look at what happened at the end of that portion of Bible history. And uh, I find it fascinating when I see how the stuff lines up. And it's like, oh yeah, that's where that fits in. Oh, I get that. Now I can see that. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. I already told you the northern kingdom was destroyed. That's, Israel was separated into two countries. The one in the north was called Israel. The one in the south was called Judah. The northern kingdom turned its back on God, and they were destroyed in 721 B.C. The southern kingdom, 586 B.C., that's 135 years later. God gave them 135 years to straighten out. You see what happened up north? Don't be like that. God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, and they pretty much went, meh. God said, I'll do the same to you. Meh. So sure enough, 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes in, laid siege to Jerusalem, destroys the temple, takes people captive, end of a dynasty. But that's not the end of the story. Pretty much was the end of the story for the northern kingdom. They, are ne they never come back on the stage as a country. But the southern kingdom does. Here's what happened. In 535 B.C., Zerubbabel and Joshua, a couple of guys who are mentioned in the Bible, you probably haven't heard of them unless you've read that part of the book. They take about 50,000 people back because the king of Persia, Cyrus, says, go, I'm going to bless you and allow you to rebuild your temple. God has put it in my heart to do that. So 50,000 people went around 535 B.C. They rebuilt the temple, or at least got the sacrificial system up and running, around 516 B.C. So it took them about 20 years. You take the 50 years, that's how long till they got back, and the 20 years to rebuilding the temple, and that's one way some people understand Jeremiah's prophecy fulfilled, that they would be in captivity for 70 years. Other people calculate it differently. There's other ways you can get it to 70 years, but I like that one. So we're now at, you know what, 516 B.C. About 35 years after that, so the temple's built, about 35 years after that, there's a little book in the Bible called Esther. That's where that takes place. So 50,000 some odd people have come back. The temple's been rebuilt, but there's still tons of Jews left in Persia and Babylon. I mean, they stayed there. And I pointed out to you in the past, why wouldn't they? They were born there. They know the language. They've got jobs. They've got families. They've got land. It's now their new home. So very few people came back. 50,000 is not a lot of people for an entire nation. So they came back. Esther... She became queen of the mightiest empire on the planet through an amazing set of circumstances. You'll have to read the book. It's in the Bible. It's short. It's a great story. But her husband, who's called in the Bible Ahasuerus, he's also known as Xerxes. If you know anything about secular ancient history, you've heard that name. If you know anything about Hollywood 
You've heard that name. Because there's this huge blockbuster movie out a few years ago called 300. Remember 300 Spartans blocking the pass at Thermopylae against the mighty Persian army? Who was the Persian emperor? Xerxes. Well, those 300 risked their lives to save Greece. They were mighty, but you can't beat the Persians, and they didn't. Persians got through eventually, got around them, and broke through, destroyed, well, at least sacked Athens, took the Acropolis. Then there was a huge sea battle that the Persians lost, so they said, ah, we're going home. They stayed the mighty empire for a while still, but they lost that huge, decisive battle. He goes home, gets rid of his wife, finds a new one, Esther. That's where that story comes in. About 23 years after that, a book of the Bible is, starts called Ezra. So you see that all this stuff historically lays right on top of each other. Esther lived during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Haggai, Zerubbabel, maybe. Uh, Zechariah, Joshua, maybe. Not the old Joshua, the new one. So we've got Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's kind of where we're going to focus our lesson on this morning. I told you we're working our way through Old Testament history. This is the last lesson that brings us to the end of Old Testament history. We will now go back and look at some of the prophets where they all fit in. But almost all the prophets, with the exception of maybe Malachi and Zechariah, are all before this and during this time. So pretty much we've seen Old Testament history. Um, Ezra writes around 457 B.C., about 23 years after the book of Esther. Nehemiah steps into the story 15 years later. So Ezra goes to Jerusalem first, and 15 years later, Nehemiah joins him, and they work together. So here's how it went with uh, Ezra. If you ever read the book of Ezra, he who wrote the book doesn't enter the story till the seventh chapter. First six chapters, he's given background. Then he steps into the story right here. Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first, first day of the fifth month. So it took him four months from Babylon to Jerusalem. That tells me something. Because I know that the ancient Persians invented a post road, and they had horse stations every few miles. They could get over most of their Middle Eastern empire, and I've got it written down somewhere, just a few days. I mean, they were an amazing system of communication, unlike history had ever seen before. They could just, one message from one part to the other part, the guy would get on a horse, he'd just be there in no time flat. Well, it took this guy, what, four months? So I know he wasn't in a rush. He probably didn't go alone. As the Bible says, he took a caravan with him. One of the cool things about the Bible is sometimes people will challenge it on theology, they'll challenge it on history, they'll challenge it on archaeology, and these little sentences that we never pay any attention to become significant. Four months to get from Babylon to Israel, well, that makes sense. They had a post road. Now I get that he didn't have to take that road fast, and he had a caravan with him. Yeah, it's about four months. It fits in with what we know about archaeology and history from outside the Bible. Okay, he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, 
and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. I hope you'll do this when you study the Bible at home. I take a small chunk like this and I stop and I analyze it. What did I just see in there? Three things that I want to draw your attention to. The gracious hand of God was on him. How many of you want the gracious hand of God on you? It's not rhetorical. I wanted to see hands. Yeah, I want the gracious hand of God. Why did he get it? I want it. It says so in there. The gracious hand of God was on him. Two, he devoted himself to study and obedience of God's word. And three, he devoted himself to teaching God's laws to Israel. You want the gracious hand of God on you? Of course you do. Do what Ezra did. Devote yourself to the study and obedience of God's word. You don't have to become a pastor or a preacher. He also did that. But he devoted himself to studying and obeying God's word, and the gracious hand of God was on him. Okay, I know two things now. I know most of you put your hands up. You want the gracious hand of God on you. I also know the recipe for success. To get it, devote yourself to the study and obedience of God's word. You can't obey God if you really don't know what he wants, and that's why you have to study his word. Also, let me tell you something. I find the Bible to be like a spiritual battery. And when I'm running low spiritually, I plug into that thing, and my spirits get lifted. I haven't had times in my life where I've had more time in the Word and less time in the Word. And sometimes when I'm going through a rough patch, I ask myself, how has your time been in the Word lately? Not enough. Plug back in. And immediately, I get a spiritual supercharge. You don't know unless you try, but trust me, the Word of God is food to your, to your soul. How much do you eat? Real food? Three meals a day plus as many snacks as we can fit in and not let the scale get mad at us. All right, if we need that much physical food, the spiritual battle is just as important, right? I'm not going to tell you how much of the spiritual Bible you should read. I don't know. Regularly, often, and more. You can get your limit of Twinkies, but you can never get your limit of the Word of God. Listen to what God promised ancient Israel. If you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised. We see that Ezra was blessed because he devoted himself to obedience and study. God told ancient Israel he would bless them if they would devote themselves to study and obedience. In Psalm 119, the biggest psalm in the Bible about the word of God, here's how it starts. Blessed are those they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. Blessed are they devoted to the study of the law of the Lord. It says it over and over and over again. The Bible says you will be blessed by God if you devote yourself to the study of his word and to obedience. Jesus said the same thing. Listen, blessed are they who hear the word of God and do it. Luke eleven twenty eight. Hear the word, study, do it. Same thing. I asked you how many of you want to be blessed by God, want God's hand on you, and almost all of you raised your hand. I won't ask you to raise your hands now. But in your heart, answer my question. 
how many of you are willing to do what it takes? Study God's word and do it. I used to think obedience to God's word was a burden, like a list of rules. You know, you grow up and you get sick of rules. Everybody's got rules, rules at home, rules at school, get a job, rules at the job, rules in the car. Everything's rules. They're, they're killing me with their rules. There's too many rules. You realize there's so many laws on the books right now, you're probably breaking several and you don't even know it. How many of you know all the traffic laws? Unless you're a cop, don't raise your hand. And most cops don't either. Because the law code is like that thick. So they learn it in the academy. Every once in a while, they brush up against a new law they didn't know about. But they forget, too. It's just, and that's just the driving laws. You know? Well, I didn't know it was illegal to put that little hitch in front of my license plate. How you expect me to haul my trailer? Not my problem. The law says don't block your license plate. I didn't know. Of course you didn't know. And there's a gazillion others you don't know. God's law is not like that. It's not as thick, for starters. But it's not to make your life miserable and difficult and give you a hard time to commute. It's to keep you out of trouble and keep you from hurting yourself and others around you. God's word is not a bunch of boring laws that you can't understand. It's a bunch of regulations to police your own activity so your life is better. That's a good thing, isn't it? It is. It's a really good thing. So Ezra, he's devoted to God. He's devoted to teaching God. In today's language, we'd call him a pastor. And he says, I'm going to leave the dispersion and head back home and teach the people in Israel God's word. Woohoo! Let's go! Excited, thrilled, can't wait to get home and teach the word of God. Gets on his camel, his horse, his Prius, whatever it was. Off to Jerusalem he goes. I don't know if he expected this, but he didn't appreciate what he heard when he got there. Listen to the report he got. He's writing in the first person. The leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring pe peoples with their detestable practices. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Have you ever been so upset that you ripped out your own hair and pulled the beard hairs out, ladies? See, most men in our culture don't wear beards. I've had full beards. And when my little kids grabbed a few of them hairs and tucked them, that hurts. This guy was so upset that he could pull the hairs out of his own head. My first thought on this was, dude, overreact much? That was my first thought. But then I gave it some more thought, and I was like, Steve, your first thought of this guy is he's emotional. Your first thought should have been, why aren't you that upset with sin? Because I'm nowhere near as holy and godly as he was. I'm the frog in the kettle. I'm used to it. I see it all the time. He showed up in Jerusalem, and he was just appalled at what was going on. He was appalled for multiple reasons, not the least of which, 
didn't we learn our lesson? We've been in captivity for 70 years. Israel's destroyed. God just let us come back. And you're doing all over again what got us busted in the first place. We're going to be destroyed again. And how do you think God feels? He's so patient and gracious. He's given us another chance. This is the third hundredth other chance. And what are you doing? You're spitting in his face. Other question I had. What was the big sin? They intermarried. So what? We do that all the time in this culture. That wasn't the sin, intermarriage. It's, this isn't a racial thing. This is a spiritual thing. Following, um, they did not keep themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. God told them, don't intermarry with people who do evil things like that. Worship idols, kill their own children, commit all sorts of weird, lewd acts that I don't want to talk about so we can keep it rated PG here. But that would be rated R and 17 stuff, the stuff they did. And they were intermarrying with them. Well, what's the problem with that? Let me show you what the problem with that is. In a cup of water, there are over 47,000 drops. You know, drop, drop, drop. Over 47,000 in one cup. One drop. Blue food coloring. One drop versus 47,000 drops. Who's going to win? Imagine in your backyard, we have dogs. It's a big pile of doggy doo-doo. And you've got a nice white laundered shirt on. I say you take your white shirt and clean up that doo-doo. I don't mean take it off the ground and throw it in the garbage. Purify the doo-doo with your nice clean white shirt. What will happen? Will you purify a quarter of the doo-doo with your nice clean shirt? Will you purify a tenth of the doo-doo? No, you will soil your white shirt. Doo-doo transfers. Purity doesn't. Isn't that crazy? You take a rotten tomato and throw it into a bunch of good tomatoes, all the good tomatoes convert it and it becomes a good tomato. No, the rotten one ruins all the good ones. One drop against 47,000 drops. You don't have 46 thousandths percent of purity versus 1,047. You don't have that. All you have is 47,000 impure drops now. God's rules are not to hurt us. They're to help us. God says, do not mingle with those wicked people. It will rub off on you. La -dee -da -dee -da -dee -da. They start doing it, and Ezra just starts pulling the hair out of his head in frustration and grief and anger and whatever. He was in despair. The word he used, I sat down appalled. The problem is not racial. God has no problem with cross-racial marriages, people. His problem is when we mingle with people that don't share our faith. Now, it was more severe in Ezra's days even than today because oftentimes the people we marry aren't wicked, evil people. They just don't share our faith. But in those days, they were wicked, evil people. They did weird and lewd and bad things that would rub off. But even so, God doesn't want those that follow him to be too closely tied to those that don't. It's unhealthy. Listen to this passage of Scripture from the New Testament. 
Stop becoming unevenly yoked with unbelievers. What partnership can righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony exists between the Messiah and Belial? Or what do a believer and an unbeliever have in common? The rule in the New Testament is if you follow Christ, marry somebody who follows Christ. If you don't follow Christ, marry somebody who doesn't follow Christ. That's the rule. Sometimes people who do follow Christ marry people who don't follow Christ. And that leads to troubles, lots of troubles. Well, what if I've already done that, Steve? Well, God bless you. Make it work. It happens. But if you're not, don't. Don't. Here's where, where I have seen... <laughs> there's a lot of pain that comes from that kind of relationship. Marriages are tough enough as it, as it is, but when you have warring faith, and that's usually the case. It's not a devoted person and a whatever-you-want-to-do-honey person. It's a I'm-heading-forward person and I'm-heading-backward person. I've seen it in almost every instance. Oh, I can't go to church Sunday. My wife wants to do this. Oh, I can't be there Wednesday night because my husband said I can't go on Wednesdays anymore. That's, that, and that kills them. They, 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 they feel the struggle between their spouse and God, and it, it destroys them. It hurts them. But you know where it really hurts them the most? Their children. Because one of their parents is telling them, Jesus isn't real. There's no such thing as hell. You don't have to go to church. Don't listen to that nonsense. It's just a, a, a crutch for a bunch of weak people. And the other spouse is thinking... They're trying to send my children to hell. How do you think they feel when their own children can't go to church and have somebody in the house constantly denigrating God? It destroys their hearts. One drop. God wants his people to stay pure and holy. So beware the power of negative influence. And that's the thing. Negative influence, they were, their issue was marrying bad people. Our issue may not be that. Our issue may just be bad friends, bad things on TV. I don't know. Just beware the power of negative influence. The, the Bible says, do not be deceived. Bad companionship corrupts good morals. Don't be deceived. One of the things I told you about impurity rubbing off, impurity doesn't rub off. I got another picture. You got the picture of my fingers up there? Uh, it's hard for you to see that. I guess I didn't take a great picture. But when I first, you know, when I have a little object lesson like this, I want to practice it, make sure it goes off without a hitch. And I had some food coloring at home. So I opened up the little box of food coloring and I grabbed the blue dye and it stuck to the box. It wouldn't come out. So I'm pulling and pulling and pulling, and the top popped off. Now I've got a stuck blue dye in there with no top. So like a brilliant male, I decided I'm going to get that sucker out of there. I grabbed a hold of it, got dye on my fingers. I was like, oh, well, I'll just go wash it off. It didn't wash off. That picture's taken after soap and water scrubbing. I thought, wow, you didn't intend that for part of your lesson, Steve, but... Not only does it spread easy, it don't come off easy. When I'm done with the sermon, if anybody of you think you can take out that drop of blue dye, I'd appreciate you trying. 
It's only one drop in 47,000. It should be hard to take out. God wants us to be very cautious of what we allow to rub off on us. And there's a fine line to walk. Like people say, well, does that mean I shouldn't have any non-believing friends? Of course not. What I mean by of course not is have all sorts of non-believing friends. What are you going to do, leave the planet? You know? And let me tell you, there's a lot of non-believing people that I like better than believing people. They're nicer. They're easier to get along with, and they're more fun. And I don't mean bad fun. Because there are people who are all made in God's image. We're all God's children. We're not all right with God, and we're not all saved. God loves us all. So yes, love unsaved people too. Unless they're rubbing off on you and bringing you down. So it's a fine line. You just got to be careful with it. I'll tell you what's not okay, though. It's not okay to hang out with a brother or sister in Christ who's taking you down. That's not okay. In other words, God says hang out with unbelievers. Just don't hang out with believers who act like unbelievers. A lot of verses in the Bible that say to stay away from brothers and sisters, so-called, who are living in sin. By living in sin, I mean embracing some sort of sin in their lifestyle without willing to give it up. I don't know what that sin is. Drugs, alcohol, um, whatever. I don't know what the sins are. I'm just saying, whatever they're doing, gossip. You know, that's a big, bad sin. You've got friends that are constantly gossiping. Time for looking for new friends. If they're close enough, go up and say, hey, listen, I love you. You're one of my best friends. And I know you're going to hate me for saying this, but I'm going to have to risk it. You gossip all the time, and it's driving me away. I don't want to hear things about people. It's, it's wrong, and I don't want to hear it anymore. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm telling you I'm going to leave if you keep doing it. Well, I could never do that, Steve. Do it. Man up. Has to be done. Has to be done. What are the other options? The other options, you leave without telling them why. How loving is that? Or you stay there and get soiled. God says, no, don't do that. Sometimes we have to make hard decisions. Listen to this one, Romans 16. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Keep away from them. This is only one verse out of several I could have shared with you. We're forbidden in other passages to socialize with people who call themselves followers of Christ but don't live like it. That's why. But we're not supposed to go like all Amish on them either. You know, their shunning thing. The door is always open for repentance. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Restore them gently. Well, how do you do that? Like I just showed you. You don't go up in their face and say, man, you're a horrible sinner and I don't want to have anything to do with you. Yeah, that'll win them over. Not to mention, chances are, you know, for every five of his sins, you've got ten. You're not claiming to be perfect. You can even go up to him and say, listen, I'm going to tell you something hard right now. You're my friend. I have to tell you. And after you're done being mad at me, I'm inviting you to tell me something hard about me because I'm sure there's something you can say. I'm not saying I'm better than you, but there's something you do that hurts me, and it's hurting our friendship. This is what you do. 
That's gentle. Yeah, they can get mad. They can hate you. But they're your friend. One of the things about friends versus acquaintances is friends like you. Acquaintances, they don't care one way or the other. Friends like you despite you. You know what I mean? They take you for who you are. That's what I like about friends. That's what I like about my friends. They know me for who I am. They like me anyway. And it just blows my mind. You know, I've got a wife who knows me really well, and she stays married to me. Go figure. <laughs> She's a keeper. <laughs> so Ezra's job was to get these people back on track spiritually, leading spiritual renewal. Fifteen years later, a new guy comes on the scene, Nehemiah. His job was to get the community back on track socially, politically. I don't even know what word to use. Politically, I guess. He was a political leader, also a man of God. But his job was to get the walls around Jerusalem rebuilt, to get leadership structure in place, and to make Jerusalem a vibrant and functioning city-state. That was his job. Nehemiah was the cup-bearer to King Artaxerxes. I already told you about Xerxes. Now we're at Artaxerxes, which I think is his grandson. Not sure, but I think. He was the cup-bearer to the king. There's not a lot of archaeological data about exactly what a cup-bearer did. But here's what is pretty much believed cupbearers were about. They were responsible for bringing food to the king and proving it wasn't poisoned by eating it themselves first or drinking from the cup first. Here's your cup of wine. No, it's not poisoned. Look. In order to have that position, what does that say about the king and you? He trusts you. He trusts you with his life. It's not like he went on Craigslist and said, needed cupbearer for the king. Apply today, great salary, wonderful French benefits, you might die. He elected somebody, he appointed somebody to that position he could trust with his life. How many people do you know that you could literally trust with your life today? Those were the people who became cupbearers. Nehemiah was that guy. So Nehemiah comes before the king one day, all dejected. He just, he had a, you know, people are bummed, you can see it on their face. So he comes up to him and says, what's wrong? Why are you all dejected? He said, how can I not be dejected? My city's in ruins. The walls are down. The enemies are having their way. King says, what do you want me to do? He says, let me go back and do something. Let me rebuild the walls. The king said, you know it. You got it. I will send you timber, money, letters of passage. I'll command all the governors in all the regions between here to there to send you supplies and let everybody know to help, not hurt. When are you leaving? Wow. Gracious hand of God was upon him, too. So off he went. But when he got there, he didn't tell anybody why he was there at first. Big shots here. Why is he here? He didn't tell anybody. He wanted to scope out the lay of the land without anybody whispering in his ear. So he circuited the city, looked at the destruction, and went, oh, man. Okay, guys, now let me tell you why I'm here. The king has sent me. It's time to get these walls built again and get ourselves back into shape. Yay! They were so excited, so they started to build. As I told you in previous weeks, though, when you're doing God's work, it doesn't mean it's always a smooth ride. There was significant opposition. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. 
They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. I am so glad they're not doing that today. Exact same thing happened in the late 1800s when Jews started moving back. Sambalat, Tobiah, those guys are gone, but the Arabs are still there. They got very angry, and they started stirring up trouble. Big trouble, murdering people, burning down farms, blowing people up. This, they were threatening the same things in those days. But we prayed to our God. When you encounter trouble, people, I know you do this, but let me just remind you. First thing, pray. Pray. And then post. Rest of the verse. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Got a problem in your life? Pray about it. Then do something about it. Both. They prayed to God, and then they posted guards. You got any need in your life? You, you're unemployed? Pray to God. Then go look for a job. Don't just wait at home and say, I prayed. Let's see what God does. Go look for a job. Aggressively look for a job. Can't find a job? Go back to school. Get some training so you're more hireable. Whatever you got to do, you do it and pray to God. Pray first, then post. Anything. You go to the doctor. The doctor says, man, you're this close from diabetes. Pray. Then change your diet. And on and on the list goes. You just think of any trouble in your life. Pray, then work on it. Got a meeting. It's a half hour away. Your car broke down. You can't get there. It's an important meeting. Pray and call your best friend. Put on your walking shoes. Pray, post. Pray and post. Well, we prayed to God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. They built half the wall. Now they're distressed. They're tired. They're worn out emotionally, mentally. They're scared. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and kill them and put an end to this work. Just like they're saying today. Then the Jews who live near came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. So basically they said, let's just quit. Our enemies out, they're, they're, they're just going to kill us. What's the point? They're distraught, they're in despair, they want to quit. Let me tell you in my opinion, and I got this from a president of the United States, so you can trust him, and I'll just repeat it. I think one of the greatest leadership qualities is persistence. It's dogged determination. You don't quit. Nehemiah said, oh, yeah, you're right. They're, they're, they're going to kill us. Let's, it's not worth losing lives over. Let's just quit. Nehemiah shook him by the shoulders and said, man up. Specifically, here's what he said. After I looked things over, I stood up. I love that. You know he's getting into it. You know, he had a meeting, they're sitting down, they're whining, they're complaining, and he stands up, and I'm sure everybody got quiet. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. Fight! Fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Pray, post, get up and do something about it. They threaten to kill you, good, kill them. Don't let them just come kill you, go get them. Come on, are you men or are you mice? Man up. Hike up your skirts, grab a sword, and fight. They listened. 
From that day on, half the men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand, held a weapon in the other. I do not appreciate pacifism. Let me tell you, I think pacifism is a great idea if everybody does it. But if one person chooses not to be a pacifist, pacifism then becomes foolish. You're in a cabin in the middle of the frozen tundra with just enough food to last for a month. And the rescue party said they'll be there in a month and two days. So you know you just got enough food to be a little hungry when they get there. There's ten of you. One of the guys wants to eat your food because he's big and strong and hungry. You going to let him? You are if you're a pacifist because you can't do anything about it. He's going to punch you right in your face and take your food. So what do you do? You pick up a frying pan and hit him in the head and say, no, you're not. Or you're going to starve to death. Your choice. But he's big and strong. Fine, ask three of the others to help. Oh, they're scared. They'll get punched in the face. Meh. Well, when he takes my food, yours is next. You know, that's why the United States has gone to war with different countries we weren't at war with. Because we saw these evil dictatorship regimes spreading, 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 moving closer, closer, closer. We said, we better stop them there or we're going to end up fighting them here. Not only that, but those are a bunch of good, innocent people they're slaughtering. Let's do something to help. I don't like pacifism. It's not a biblical concept. Fighting evil is a biblical concept. Nobody should want war. Nobody should like war. But good people should always win war. And the only way you're going to beat bad people is fight them because they're not going to quit. Imagine this scenario. You're out in the jungle. I don't know, are there lions in the jungle? You're out in the bush. And a lion comes to attack you. And you say, wait, let's talk this through. I know you're hungry. And I know I can't fight back. No, you shoot it. You don't talk with it. You shoot it. There are lions out there, very bad people, who will kill you, your wife and your children, and laugh while they do it. Don't let them do that. Stop them. So they put on their weapons. Everybody on the walls was armed. You know what happened to the bad guys? They stuck their tails between their legs, and they went home. They were willing to fight a bunch of unarmed, non-combative people and kill them. But as soon as they picked up a sword, they were like, whoa, now we got a fight on our hands? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Good luck with the wall. <laughs> Being willing to fight often stops fights. Our country flirted with confiscating and making weapons illegal. It made it illegal in almost every city to carry a handgun. A few years back, some guy wrote a book after doing some research. He said every city that adopted concealed carry permits Crimes took a nosedive. And so more cities started carrying concealed weapons permits, and crime took a nosedive in every city. Why? Because the guy who is a criminal will hurt you and will carry a gun. You're a sucker. He can, he's going to get you. But if he thinks you might have a gun, he'll look for easier pickings, don't you know? It's just the law of the jungle. So these people turn tail and ran. Our crime stops when concealed carry permits go up. All thanks to Nehemiah. 
Ezra addressed spiritual issues with practical policies. The people were turning from God due to negative influences. They had to remove the negative influences, and he had them do that. Nehemiah addressed political issues, also with practical policies. Continue to work despite the opposition. Trust God and be prepared to fight. Sometimes you just need a leader to stand you up and help you do that. We've seen in today's lesson that God blessed the people when they obeyed him. Their circumstances were not easy, but they did overcome. I believe also that God will bless you. God will bless us if we obey him. I also believe our circumstances will not be easy, but we will also overcome. So, we saw Ezra's policies, we saw Nehemiah's practical policies. Let me give you a couple practical policies to go home with. If you don't walk with God, do so. Practical policy number one. If you do walk with God, but you've turned away from him, you're embracing sin, repent. Give that up. Renew your relationship with him. God will let you start fresh. But you're going to have to empty your garbage out to do it. Avoid those who can lead you from God, away from God. Avoid them. And number four. So number one, if you don't walk with God, do so. If you do walk with God but have turned away, turn back. Avoid those who can lead you away from God. And number four, never underestimate the power of negative influence. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, thank you for showing us through Ezra and Nehemiah's lives what we can do to have your gracious hand upon us. For showing us that it may not be easy, but we will win. We will overcome in the end. And please be with us, Lord. Give us the strength of character to avoid negative influences and the love to be bold to speak to our friends when they are harming themselves, when they are harming us, and when they are harming our church. God, help us to man up to do the right things. May your gracious hand be upon us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.